The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins from the Society of St. Pius V and pastor of Immaculate Conception Church in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. Hello, Tom. Father, we have a couple of questions tonight, and the first one comes from a viewer who uh, asks about Archbishop Lefebvre's orders. Mm-hmm. And he writes in and says, Could you please comment on the allegation that Cardinal Leonard, the bishop who ordained and consecrated Archbishop Lefebvre, was a high-ranking Freemason. Is the allegation of the Cardinal's Freemasonic affiliation true? And if it is true, does this mean that it is likely that he could have withheld his intention to do what the Church does when he conferred holy orders, even though the external form and matter of the sacrament was not compromised? How could the entire future of traditional Roman Catholicism be left to such a fickle but essential thing such as having the necessary interior intention, which no one can be certain of? There are hundreds of priests and several bishops in the world who come from the line of Archbishop Lefebvre. How would we know that anyone who defends the validity of the orders is not just doing damage control and not objectively addressing the situation? Well, there, is a ser- there are a series of questions there, seven or eight questions. There. You know, how could this be possible that it would happen this way? And, so on and, so on. and of course, this question has been addressed many times, many, many times. Um, and I'll, I'll try to address it again uh, briefly because it keeps coming up, you know, because people don't know that we've already talked about it many times in the past. So um, There were many, uh, we're told, many Masons in the hierarchy going back some years. In fact, uh, when Pope Pius IX was elected, uh, Cardinal Mastai Ferretti, Back in 1846, again, you know, it was thought that, well, maybe he's a Mason, he's so liberal, maybe he's a Mason, you know. And, of course, the Masons said in the early 1800s their goal was to infiltrate the church hierarchy, and uh, although Nubius, the Masonic writer in what is now known as the Permanent Instruction of the Alta Vendita, the document captured the Masonic lodges in the early 1800s, outlining the Masonic plan to infiltrate the church said that they didn't want a Mason to be the Pope, because if a Mason himself became the Pope, then he would be in on the plot, he would know everything, and if he had a change of heart, conversion, he could unveil everything, the entire plot could just evaporate, you know. Mm. So they said, we don't want a Mason to be the member, to be the actual Pope, but we want to elect somebody who thinks the way we do. And uh, so he said, in order to get a pope who thinks the way we do, we have to create a generation from which he will be drawn into the priesthood, rise up, and eventually we can elect him. But he will not himself be a mason, because then he would know too much. I mean, this is the plot as it was uh, discovered in the uh, permanent instruction of the Alvandita under the code name, the the nom de guerre of, of Nubius. So it's been known for quite some time that the Masons had their designs on infiltrating the hierarchy and uh, and wreaking havoc in the church that way. 
And we also had the testimony of uh, clergymen in the church back in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s uh, that there were quite a number of Masons that had actually gained access to the hierarchy at that time. <clears throat> back in the 1970s, uh, one began to see lists and lists, long lists of names of cardinals and get listing the the dates that they entered masonry and the lodges that they entered and so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, that that's when things became very suspect to me. Okay. Like, who has these lists? Where do they get them? Who compiled them? How do we, how do we, how can we put any confidence in them? You know, I mean, certainly they didn't go around announcing, uh, mm -hmm. you know, to the world. Yes, I was accepted into this, in this rite of masonry, I achieved this rank, and I uh, entered in this lodge on this date. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> making it up, evidently. Uh, and I think they were just uh, basically trying to ma make it look ridiculous that the masons would be in the hierarchy, or uh, people who are credulous and just say, oh, they're masons in the hierarchy, so all of this must be true. Every time somebody turns out a list, it must be exactly true, you know, mm -hmm. so that either way the masons would win the enemies of the church would win by driving people out of the church away from the church and drive them away from the sacraments right there are those who would say oh this this talk of this plot is is ridiculous you know there are a bunch of conspiracy nuts who are coming up with this idea or the conspiracy nuts that they're denouncing would say oh my goodness the church is doomed it's finished look at all these masons you know yeah. so either way they they, they accomplish their purpose but right. You know, with, with regard to um, Pope Pius IX, uh, Cardinal Mastai Ferretti was not a Mason, okay? When he was elected in 1846, he was known to be very liberal. In fact, the, the things he did as Pope uh, back in 1846 favored the Masons. He did a number of measures, the, some of the first measures he took, uh, releasing the, the mercenary uh, revolutionaries, uh, the Masonic uh, operatives in the Papal States, were trying to foment revolution. He, he let them out. They, they, they had been caught in the act, they'd been jailed, and he, he released them, mm -hmm. okay, um, <clears throat> to continue their work, you know. So they also wanted him to surrender the Papal States to lay control. He did. Again, you know, he thought, well, I mean, these people have goodwill. They mean well, <laughs> so... And then the Masons turned around and knifed, uh, knifed them to death. They're also, they knifed them to death on the steps of the Quirinal Palace. Um, that seemed to think, be the thing that opened the eyes of Papias the, the, the Ninth. But he wasn't a Mason. He became a, an inveterate uh, enemy of Masonry and a very great Pope. Um, but there were Masons who were worming their way into the hierarchy. There's no doubt about it. You know, there were those accusations made against uh, Monsignor and then Bishop and then Archbishop uh, Bonini, Anibale Bonini, <coughs> who was the architect of the new Mass, that he was a Mason. Paul VI denied it and then sent him off as apostolic nuncio to Iran, you know, <laughs> where he was never seen or heard from again, mm -hmm. basically. So, uh, but his new Mass still remains what it is, you yeah. know. And when some, uh, some a priest, actually, an Aubertine priest, a Prevost Retention priest who worked with uh, Bonini in the craft, crafting of the new Mass, was confronted with the question whether he was a Mason, he said it's very possible. Yeah. 
because there are many masons in the masons in the hierarchy at that time. That's what this priest said. You know? and very matter of factly. It's in print, what he said. And uh, but he said he didn't think he didn't think. Um, uh, Benini was a mason. He just said he thought like a mason. Basically, he he was looking for a liturgy in the new mass, the new mass that you know the Novus Ordo Catholic circle go to, where they worship. And he said that it was crafted by a man who was looking for a liturgy that would resonate with modern, secular, Western man. Uh, well, modern, modernist, uh, Western, yeah, Western tradition, Western liberalism. Secular, in the sense that God should not be uh, necessarily recognized in uh, modern public life. He wanted a, a liturgy that would basically suit that kind of mentality. And that's exactly what the Novas is. It, mm-hmm. is. it is not Catholic. Never intended to be Catholic. But anyway, was this the result of masonry? Yeah, it was the result of the work of masons in the church. Was uh, Cardinal Leonard, uh, the, the man who ordained Archbishop of Fev, the man who consecrated him, one of the three, was he a mason? Possibly. You know, I've never seen any convincing evidence. I've heard people talk of it. <clears throat> there was even a time over at Acon when uh, Monsignor Lefebvre himself was giving us a conference. And the Archbishop told us he had seen a photograph of uh, Archbishop Leonard actually standing outside the door of a Masonic Lodge. <laughs> and he, he talked about how, how distressed he was to discover in the pages of CC No No, that's where the mm-hmm. article, where the, the um, photograph supposedly appeared, uh, he was he was horrified to discover that uh, you know the man who ordained him and consecrated him uh, was a mason. You know, <clears throat> um, I actually uh, later on came across that picture, and it wasn't a picture of, Arch- of Cardinal Leonard standing outside a Masonic lodge. Okay, it was a picture of Cardinal Leonard dressed as a cardinal in all the regalia of a Catholic cardinal. Mm-hmm. And the, the picture was simply photoshopped or superimposed on a picture of a Masonic Lodge uh-huh. door. Pure and simple. Mm-hmm. Cardinal Leonard, I mean, and any of these cardinals who might have joined the Masons, did not go around dressed in full <laughs> cardinalatial regalia, standing outside, uh, <laughs> car- you know, uh, uh, my Senate Lodge doors for their pictures to appear at CC. No, no, right. come on, you know. So, but the Archbishop obviously was just so overwhelmed with the thought of it, that mm-hmm. it you know, it just it really hit yeah. struck him hard. You know? yeah. So when I saw that the the picture was was not what it appeared to be, mm-hmm. it was well done, cleverly done, but it was it it was not uh, <laughs> what it purported to be. Um, I began to wonder well, what evidence is there for this. You know, you have people always talking about it, but is it like a, uh, just a storm, a circular storm, or like a, a cyclone or a hurricane going around and around and around? And there's really in the middle, it's there's nothing happening, there's nothing there. You know? So I began to look into it, and it tur- turns out that the the whole idea of Cardinal Leonard himself being a mason seems to have started with a uh, a Marquis de, de la Francerie. Marquis de la Francerie was, I don't know, it's, what would you compare him to? It was for, sort of like reading, reading a tabloid today, I guess, you know. 
And uh, the Marquis de, de la Franquerie wrote that he was attending a party once. And while he was attending this party, uh, uh, someone he identified only as Monsieur B, the, the letter, capital letter B, period, didn't give his name, just a Mr. B, like a Mr. X, mm -hmm. <laughs> came up to him and said, I need to tell you something. It's been weighing on my conscience. So then Mr. B spilled the beans that he was uh, a member of Masonic Lodge, and when he entered the Masonic Lodge, he saw Cardinal Leonard there as a member of the Masonic Lodge. Mm -hmm. And he had to reveal this now. And he had to choose to reveal it of all people at the Marquis de la Franquerie at a party. <laughs> it seems that this was it. I mean, I have never seen any other evidence that does not trace itself back to the story of uh, the, the Marquis de la Franquerie. Hmm. So, you know, you ask yourself, now wait a minute, you know, before you accuse somebody of something like this, don't you need some kind of compelling evidence? I mean, what kind of evidence would you need to compel to convict somebody of a crime? You know, hmm. in the eyes of the church, it is a crime, right? Hmm. Uh, in the eyes of God, it's a crime. So what kind of evidence would you need to accuse, to uh, make the accusation, let alone to actually have convict somebody to oh, this, you know? Um, so you have these people who solemnly say, oh, it seems to be true, it seems to be true. Oh, how sad, you know? You think, oh, wait a minute, where were you getting this, you know? What evidence is there for this? Was he a liberal? Well, there were a lot of liberals. And even the liberals say that, yeah, but he, there were a lot of liberals who might not have been Masons. You know? yeah. They were just liberals. Yeah. As I say, back, going back to 1846, uh, uh, Cardinal Mastai Ferretti had a reputation for being a liberal. He thought he was a Mason. He was elected the Pope. You know? So um, we need a lot more uh, than this to you know, start drawing conclusions. Mm -hmm. um, but I would say this. Even, even if one is one of those who says, well, <clears throat> gee, you know, it must have been true, it must have been true, why would anybody say it if it weren't true? You know, people. <clears throat> there are always people who are going to gravitate toward the worst possible explanation, you know. Yeah. And I would just remind them that uh, Talleyrand, Perigord de Talleyrand, was the errant. Ill-born Ill -born son of a, of a nobleman in France, and he could not pursue a military career because of his club foot. So they figured, well, he's good for nothing but the clergies. So they stuck him in the seminary, and he went on. And he became a um, clergyman, okay? And when they had the Revolutionary Church in France, he signed on with them. I mean, this was a man who supposedly was climbing over the seminary wall to go out drinking with his buddies. And supposedly, the, the day that they named him a bishop and carried him off and got him consecrated a bishop uh, by the Revolutionary Church, you know, in France, um, that after the consecration, the, the story is that, that his friends carried him off to five different Masonic lodges for parties to celebrate. Right? Mm -hmm. So... Later on, there was a restoration. The Talleyrand, Talleyrand had actually been responsible for the consecration of a number of, a number of bishops. Yeah. If one wants to know the mind of the church, one would have to say, well, what happened to those, among other questions, one would have to raise the question, 
Okay, well, what happened to the bishops uh, consecrated by Talleyrand? Were they automatically, uh, like, uh, held irregular? Were they suspended? Were they defrocked? Uh, what was going on there? And the answer is no. I mean, uh, no doubt one or two, because of their personal unworthiness, might well have been. But did the church simply say, okay, they're all invalid, let's start over again. Check them all out and start over again. Not necessarily, no. I think if you went back in history, you'd find that the church accepted some of the orders being valid. Why? Because she makes it very clear that what she goes by is when you have the external right being followed meticulously, very carefully, that that is the primary indication of the interior disposition and the intention of the person. Mm -hmm. And uh, does she automatically nullify? Uh, you know, if she finds that uh, a bishop has uh, even been consorting with the enemy, you know, the, the Masons and so on, she doesn't automatically necessarily nullify her intentions and so on. <clears throat> she finds, she looks for something that, that might be uh, proof positive that they withheld their intention. Mm -hmm. But she doesn't do it automatically, uh, just assume that they, have, that they must have had the wrong intention. Mm -hmm. This is what the church has gone by. And ultimately, we have to go by the church's own manner of judging these things. We can't say, well, I... I don't think that's a good way to do it, so I'm going to say, no, I'm not going to let, let, you know, let him get away with it. Mm -hmm. uh, the church has judged these things. We have to trust that judgment, and her, ultimately in her magisterial mm -hmm. judgment. She knows what's right. She knows what Christ taught. She knows how to apply it. She knows how to assure the valid sacraments for her children. Mm -hmm. And... Um, she knows what is necessary to make a sacrament valid. I mean, she's the one, the church is the one who defined it for us. Right. <clears throat> so who is the person that's going to say, well, I know my moral and sacramental theology, I know what's required for a, a valid sacrament, <clears throat> and I'm going to say that the church made bad judgments in this. And you say, well, wait a minute, the church is the one who taught you what is necessary, <laughs> and, the, and she's the one who has the power to judge these things. Right. <clears throat> Uh, and then people might come and say, well, look at the Novus Ordo. Look what it did. Look at all these invalid sacraments. They say, yeah, that's the Novus Ordo. We know. That's why we recognize them as the Novus Ordo, because they've departed from the traditional Catholic teaching. Mm -hmm. But here we're talking about the Church following her traditional Catholic teaching. And, uh, and you questioning that. Mm -hmm. So uh, it gets to the point where we just have to say, well, what is this? Then the slimmest of the evidence... <clears throat> we're going to, uh, you know, go down this rabbit hole, yeah. you know, <clears throat> of saying, well, if this, then that, and if that, then that, and if yeah. that, then that, and how can this be, and how can we make a judgment like, how can the church do these things, and how can, you know, blah, 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 and so on and forth. There's no, there's no way out of that. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what the enemy wants us to do. Sure. The enemy of the church wants to just take, it wants to stop the justification and sanctification of souls, she wants to stop the work of the church, especially in, in her holy orders. Mm -hmm. And that it means she wants to um, deprive people of the valid sacraments. Mm -hmm. Whether, she, whether the, the enemy of the church substitutes invalid sacraments through the modernism, or gets those who still have the faith to abandon the, true, the, the, the valid sacraments, they don't really care one or the other, as long as they get people away from the sacraments. Yeah. Then they get the, the people away from the, from the uh, justifying and the sanctifying power of the church, mm -hmm. Christ in the church. So uh, we have to be aware of uh, falling off either side of this wagon. Mm -hmm. um, so 
I, I would say, uh, to sum up, Tom, that uh, no one has ever produced evidence that I've seen. Yeah. There's compelling evidence that Leonard was a Mason. Mm. And we also see in the history of the church that um, the church wouldn't necessarily just decree all such consecrations invalid anyway. Right. I mean, who's to say that uh, a Mason wouldn't, you know, if a Mason doesn't even believe in these things, how would he have a contrary intention? And, you know, if he, uh, yeah. and not only that, what if his intention was, well, I'm going to actually see that all of these things are valid so they'll all be sacrilegious. Sure. Yeah. Um, that's what I want. I want them to use these to be sacrilegious, mm -hmm. you know, and then and offensive to God that way. Yeah. So um, it has to be very careful in, in uh, you know, going off, the ta off on a tangent mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, following the oblique and coming up with all these questions that seem like earth-shattering, but they're all tied to something that is not at all certain. Yeah. At its very origins, yeah. very beginning. And Father, I'd, I'd like to point out, it seems like there's, uh, there's a little bit of a similarity between this case and the case with, with, uh, with Archbishop Tuck, where it seems that uh, this idea of uh, essentially Cardinal Leonard, his, uh, his <coughs> consecration of Archbishop Lefebvre, this seems like that this would fall under the category of a notorious fact, uh, where the, the matter and the form was, was followed, everything was done under ordinary, under ordinary circumstances. Mm -hmm. And so it seems that uh, we would have to have some kind of serious evidence in order in order mm. to in order to question that. So, <laughs> well, I, I guess the took the took people would have to say, well, yeah, you can't question the the, the validity of Archbishop the Feb's ordination because it is a notorious fact. You know, if you were to follow their logic, right, right. right but it's but it's it's funny how how it plays out in this case of how this this is the case where you actually should where, where mm. Catholic teaching would say that you actually do have to accept this consecration because we have no. Evidence contrary uh, that, that anything was 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 performed in the wrong way. Here. This was done under the aegis of the church. Yeah. So this is a this is a, this is an instance of where that that mm. line of thinking, the notorious fact, would actually mm. apply, and not the one with Archbishop Took. You know, you know that's a very good point. Yeah. I mean, any of the Took consecrations that were done, you might say, kind of uh, He took his own initiative to do it his way. Yeah. He wasn't acting acting in in uh, functioning in his official capacity right. as a representative of the Catholic Church and archbishop or bishop any, anywhere. He mm -hmm. just took it upon himself to do yep. these consecrations. Yep. But they say you got to accept him as a, because it's a notorious fact. Yep. Here you have the consecrations uh, done by Cardinal Leonard. They were done under the auspices of the church in his official capacity. Yeah. And, uh, and then they say, but we've got to question those because yeah. <laughs> of this exactly. story about uh, Mr. B, yeah. Marquis Trunkery and all the rest. Yeah. So, you know, it does would seem to show that if a pro-took person <clears throat> would uh, insist that the took consecrations be accepted as valid and insist at the same time we have to question the, the validity of the consecrations done by Leonard. Yeah. Well, the, the, there would obviously be a lack of honesty and integrity and, sure. and even goodwill in that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, no, good point. Yeah, uh, Father, I wanted to point out that uh, speaking of, of masonry, like you said, we actually had a viewer write in. He said, touching your fingertips together like this is a no. form of Masonic, some kind of Masonic symbolism. What would you, no. what would you say to that? Well, I would say that, you know, there are occasionally times I'll, I'll you know, uh, you know, 
My nose itches and I itch my nose too. I'm sure that there's a Masonic symbol there somewhere. I'm sure. There is some kind of occult symbol in virtually everything you do. Yeah. And people look everywhere. Yeah. People look everywhere. Does that mean that everybody who's done this in history is signing sending some kind of Masonic symbol? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You know, you can get to the point where, you know, <clears throat> Tom, do you see that over there on the drape? Look on the curtain. My goodness. It looks like a face. <gasps> you know, and it looks like the face of uh, Colonel Leonhardt. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, you know, people can get carried away with this stuff. Sure. So, um... <laughs> so just to clarify, you're, you're oh, not okay, you're not Mason. Uh, some Mason has decided that, hey, this is what I mean when I do this, you know, yeah. and hey, let's all do this to some... But, you know, it never even occurred to me. I had no sure. idea. This. I, you know, they say that the Masons do this, too, you know, you see this uh, in paintings, renditions mm -hmm. of uh, founding fathers of the country, you see this yeah. in, in uh, what was his name, uh, Napoleon yeah. <laughs> and others and so on. And I mean, I, I'm sure that, the, uh, that they would be happy to do a painting of our Lord doing sure. that too, you know. Yeah. Um, but you know, uh, again, you can, you can really get carried away. Sure, stuff, definitely. You know, and get off the track and yeah. do much more harm than good. Yeah. Then, so uh, um, I would just say, come on, uh, come on. You know, <laughs> if I if if my nose issues and I scratch my nose, I'm not sending uh, you know some secret signal to my silent friends in the world to launch the revolution. Fair enough. I'll take your word for it, Father. Thank you, Tom. <laughs> Moving on, then we have a uh, another question uh, concerning priestly vocations. Um, and specifically uh, vocations later in life, and just a couple questions about, about the seminarian life. Uh, so we have a viewer who writes in and says, my question concerns the priestly vocation. In the Novus Ordo, it is not uncommon to find seminarians beginning near or at middle age, their late 30s or 40s, and my assumption is that in this case, the age ceiling has been raised mainly because of an overall shortage of vocations. There are some men in this group who, while still attending the Novus Ordo, come to believe that they had a priestly vocation, but then awakening to the evil of modernism, make the transition to tradition. Some bring their sense of priestly vocation with them and find it growing even stronger after having made contact with the traditional mass. But checking on the vocations pages of these various priestly societies, I find that the age ceiling is uh, 30 or 35. I by no means wish to suggest that anyone has a right to become a priest or should have a sense of entitlement to the priesthood. But nevertheless, I will ask, are there precedents for mid-age vocations in traditional priestly societies? I would imagine so. Okay. Um, when I was a student at Econ, mm -hmm. there were some uh, gentlemen there who probably were mid-30s, yeah. I'm sure. Okay. And uh, when we had the seminary in Ridgefield, Connecticut, I mean, there was at least one there I know who was certainly mid-30s. Okay. Yeah. So I mean the uh, the worthiness of a, the 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 reality of a vocation, the worthiness of a vocation can be judged um, uh, certainly not not simply as a matter of age alone. Could be vetoed simply because of age alone. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but that depends. I mean, ultimately, the the, uh, the bishop or the rector of the seminary, you know, yeah. sometimes given the latitude to. Uh, determine whether someone might well have a vocation or not. Mm -hmm. right? um, and even if um, even if they determine that a person might have a vocation, doesn't mean they have a vocation to that particular group or that particular calling. You mm -hmm. know, um, 
maybe maybe they should join traditional Catholic monks or yeah. or religious somewhere, you know. So, um, so I mean, if the question is, can one be in his mid thirties and still have a vocation to the traditional Catholic priesthood? I would say, well, yes, theoretically it could. And could such a person be admitted to the seminary to study? I would say theoretically, yes, it could. But they'd have to actually take the case to someone who had the power to admit them. Mm-hmm. They'd have to contact a seminary, a real traditional Catholic cemetery, seminary, not what it is, and not a traditional Catholic cemetery, but a Catholic traditional Catholic seminary. <clears throat> and um, and um, probably interview and answer questions, and uh, you know, they'd have to be satisfied. Uh, the bishop who would be doing the ordaining, or the um, rector of the seminary, whoever, would have to be uh, uh, convinced that uh, this person of whatever age might well have a vocation and uh, uh, be called upon to enter and, mm-hmm. and try. Okay. And then he asked another question, Father, where if someone does enter at a, a later time in their life, and if they already have some kind of background with uh, various advanced degrees or maybe a, uh, a knowledge of, of liberal arts or, or Latin, say, mm-hmm. could their time in the seminary possibly be shortened because of that uh, pre Well, I mean, we're asking hypoth- hypothetical sure. questions here, and I say, could, could it be? It could be, I suppose. Okay. You know, Again, it depends on those who have the, the responsibility and the authority to make that decision. You know? okay. But I, I personally, I would say... It's not just a matter of the you know knowing Latin right, mm-hmm. or Greek. I mean, <clears throat> someone might be a classical languages scholar, yeah. you know, and so they that person might not be put through classes of learning Latin again, uh, or they might even be employed in teaching <clears throat> others if they're that good mm-hmm. at what they do. Um, but there's not just the academic. Preparation. There's the spiritual training too, and the okay. spiritual training for, let's say, a religious congregation or order uh, requires postulancy, novitiate, perhaps two years of novitiate in some cases. <clears throat> they go through temporary vows, and there's a certain amount. There's a certain timetable set. Mm-hmm. You know, I would say if you get somebody who's 40 years old who enters the seminary for the first time, <clears throat> I think, okay, that person gee, has a lot of life experience and. Uh, Maybe they're Latin scholars and so on. <clears throat> but at the same time, somebody who enters at 40 years old can be pretty well set in his ways. And he, if he's been in a modern seminary, you might think, okay, he needs some time to unlearn certain things yeah, too. Definitely. you know. So that time might be all the more necessary. The full time might be all the more necessary, depending on the person's background. Mm-hmm. To make sure that they are capable of uh, conforming to the right and the good and actually quote, unquote, fitting in, you know, yeah. uh, where they need to, okay? Yeah. The seminary is not a matter of destroying someone's personality or individuality. Uh, <clears throat> that's that's true, but the seminary really does require that somebody work as a team, you yeah. know, and the, the priests uh, do have to work together very closely, you know? Mm-hmm. They have to be able to work together very closely, and they have to be able to uh, follow the rule. You know, the rule of life that you accept. Mm. So um, the time might still very well be necessary, and in some cases for later vocations, even more necessary than for someone who's still very flexible and formable, as it were, yeah. because the formation is the key. Mm-hmm. That's good. 
Well, Father, I think we have just a few minutes left. I believe you wanted to make a few comments about one of our, uh, our recent programs with, with Dorothy Day, where you did a little more, more yes. research. Well, our previous program uh, raised the question, Dorothy Day, was is she a socialist? Well, you know, yeah. But the Novus Ordo now lionizing Dorothy Day. And mm-hmm. At the time, I said I didn't know really much about Dorothy Day, and I still don't. Okay. However, <clears throat> I did try to find out some things about her. Yep. Okay. And uh, one might say, well, the last place you'd look to find out is on the Internet. And the last place is is Wikipedia. And I understand that, okay? But I I don't have a lot of time to investigate. I don't have a lot of resources. You can't go to the library and start reading volumes and volumes and volumes (laughs) of the old Catholic worker and so on. Um, So I would say this. I mean, those who are really interested in the question can verify what's here, okay? They can look at the Wikipedia article on Dorothy Day. Mm-hmm. There, there is an extensive bibliography, or, uh, uh, footnotes, yep. Yep. lots and lots of footnotes here, okay. attributing uh, statements to her and uh, statements about her to various sources. And for someone who actually can take the time to go investigate these, I think it'd be worth it. Okay. Why? Because if what's here is true. I think it actually makes a very powerful case as to why Francis and Dorothy Day are perfect for each other, (laughs) and why he would find Dorothy Day to be the ideal person to carry the torch for his idea of sanctity today, okay? Uh, Did she convert? Yes. Was she genuine in her conversion? I think so, Mm -hmm. from what little I can tell here. But she always remained, nonetheless, the revolutionary at heart. Mm-hmm. Pacifism was the big message of hers. So she considers herself a radical, mm-hmm. right? She had many friends, many communist friends throughout her life. She maintained that friendship, right? And, uh, <clears throat> but the one thing that was a steady drumbeat throughout her entire life was pacifism, pacifism. No violence, no resistance, don't fight pigment. Uh, I mean, the article even says that that began in 1935 in the Catholic Worker. And, uh, I mean, you had these these revolutionaries who were already uh, active back then. Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, back then she was even friends with Thomas Merton, Daniel Barrigan, and, and others who became very kind of radical in their yeah. radicalized faith, you know, later on. So she was all part of that, part of that group there. And uh, the Spanish Civil War, as you know, was the effort of, of, of uh, the, so the Bolsheviks in Russia to export communism. communism. And uh, Dorothy, Dorothy Day um, broke with Catholic traditional Catholic doctrine of a just war theory, theory in 1935. And it, the next year, she would not... Uh, take sides in the Spanish Civil War uh, between the church and the so-called Republicans who were fighting to establish communism in in Spain. She would not take sides. Um, She uh, would not side with the church. And uh, Franco... You know, in his efforts to prevent his company, his country from falling to the communists, she knew of the atrocities committed by the socialist, anarchist communists, Mm -hmm. all directed from Moscow. She knew of those. She would not condemn that. Um, And that that is very troubling. 
And all through her uh, her existence there, she um, <clears throat> she 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 carried a torch for the radical communist um, butchers, you know. Um, I mean, you know, again, I'm not going to read this article aloud here. I'm just going to say that, that she always maintained that soft spot. And you hear it in Francis, too. Yeah. In, uh, she helped found Liberation magazine in 1956 with two uh, veterans of the pacifist movement. In 1960, she praised Fidel Castro. Wow. Well, at that time, you know, Castro was trying to make himself out to be some kind of liberator against Batista, right? But she praised Castro's promise of uh, social justice. She said it's far better to revolt violently, even though she was a pacifist, than to do nothing about the poor destitute. So there she kind of uh, shows a kind of two-facedness, you know, to revolt violently, which is what Castro was doing, right? She traveled to Cuba reported her experiences in a series in The Catholic Worker about her experiences with the revolution of Castro. She says, I am most of all interested in the religious life of the people, and so must not be on the side of a regime that favors the extirpation of religion. On the other hand, when that regime is bending all its efforts to make a good life for the people, a naturally good life, on which grace can build, one cannot help mm. but be in favor of the measures taken. Sounds just like Francis. Just it's like the voice of Francis. Yeah. You know? Yeah. She hoped that the Second Vatican Council would endorse nonviolence as a fundamental tenet of Catholic life. Okay? Mm. Nonviolence, pacifism, denounce nuclear arms, their use in warfare, and even as deterrence, <clears throat> that they should be denounced. She lobbied bishops in Rome and joined with women in their 10-day fast. This is during Vatican II. Mm -hmm. She was happy with the Council's Gaudium et Spes, the Church in the Modern World, which said that nuclear war warfare was incompatible with traditional Catholic just war theory, and so on. And so she, she, she always lined up with the radicals. Uh, in, in, in the practical decisions that she made. She visited the Kremlin. She, she supported Solzhenitsyn, and she, verbally anyway, in his in resistance to the communists, but she also, in visiting the Kremlin, reported that she was moved, favorably touched, to see the names of Americans, Ruthenberg and Bill Haywood, on the Kremlin wall in Roman letters, and the name Jack Reed, with whom she worked in, in Kyrillic characters, that's the Russian characters, in a flowered grave. Now these were all, these were communists. Ruthenberg was the founder of the Communist Party, USA. Haywood was a key figure of the IWW, which is another radical socialist uh, outfit. Jack Reed, the journalist better known as John Reed, who authored a very, very radical book, Ten Days That Shook the World, about the Bolshevik Revolution. She was moved that they would be commemorated on the wall of the Kremlin. So what is wrong here? There's something fundamentally, there must be a naive, naivete there that is almost uh, to the point of a pathology mm -hmm. on her part. You know, whose side is she on? Cesar Chavez was a radical uh, social worker, uh, activist out in California. 
They supported the work of Cesar Chavez in organizing California farm laborers from the beginning until the mid-1960s. She admired him for being motivated by religious inspiration and committed to nonviolence. This is something you see throughout this idea, that she admires them for their good intentions, mm -hmm. for their motivation. Well, they say, they say with their motivation that Karl Marx was motivated by a great altruism toward the rest of the human race. Not, mm -hmm. certainly, he wasn't. But she'll still find that that's a wonderful thing, you know, dear Karl. He meant well. Mm -hmm. You know, we still have to support him in this. This is uh, pathological here. We see the same thing in Francis. Uh, with such a great buddy of these well-intentioned communists. They mean so well, you know. And we must support them in their good intentions. She joined uh, Cesar Chavez in 1973 and has campaigned for farm laborers in the fields of California. She was arrested with other protesters for defying an injunction against picketing. Spent 10 days in jail. This is not a woman who's protesting abortion. This is a woman who's protesting, well, she's a, being a social activist. And no wonder the radicals embraced her. Because she saw, they saw she was one of them. Because she would basically confront law and order and break law in, in order to... Um, in order to affect social change. You know, she saw this as a means of affecting social change. And uh, in The Catholic Worker, May 1951, she wrote that Marx, Lenin, and Mao Zedong were, quote, this is a quote now, were animated by the love of brother. Oh my and they say, oh, brother. <laughs> oh, brother. You've got to be kidding me. Mao Zedong, who says that, who boasted that 20 million people had died for the glory of communism, and Marx and Lenin, I mean, this is absurd. We're animated by the love of brother, and this we must this we must believe, though their ends meant the seizure of power and the building of mighty armies, the compulsion of concentration camps. She's admitting all that. Forced labor, torture, killing of tens of thousands, even millions. But we must believe that they were animated by the love of brother. You know, this is pathological. Yeah. And we see it in Francis, too. She says we must use them examples because we must believe that they are all men are brothers. And we must see the humanity in everyone. Yes, in Marx, in Lenin, in Mao. I mean, this has nothing to do with reality. This is pure. This is pure pathological fantasy. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, um, you know... Moran, uh, Peter Moran, who was one of the men who inspired her. Um, you know, again, they, they, would, they would even go to the go so far as quote, quoting Marx, quoting Lenin, Lenin quoting Mao Zedong, uh, quoting Ramakrishna, to restate the case for our common humanity, the brotherhood of man and the fatherhood of God. So they would go to this extent. And in 1970, according to this article, and again, all of this is footnoted here for those who care to go and look at it. And I, I could read the footnotes, but that would double what I'm, the length of what I'm saying here. Uh, according to the reference given here, 1970, Day emulated Moran when she wrote, the two words, anarchist, pacifist, should go together, especially at this time when more and more people, even priests, are turning to violence and are finding their heroes in Camilla Torres, 
among the priests and Che Guevara among laymen. <laughs> the attraction is strong because both men literally laid down their lives for their brothers. Greater love hath no man than this. Wow. Quoting the words of our Lord to apply to Che Guevara, <laughs> he was a murderous yeah. devil. Yeah. You know, the man, the man must have been possessed. He was one of the most vicious, cruel men who ever lived. A doctor. Yeah. And yet he would blow somebody away, just murder him, without any provocation at all. All for the glory of the revolution. And she quotes the words of our Lord that he laid down his life. Um, I will not say he's an animal, because that would actually be unfair to animals. Yeah. Because when people go that wicked, they're not animals, they're devils. Yeah. You know? And he had a diabolical malice, maliciousness to him. Uh, again, this is quoted from her. Let me say at the risk of seeming ridiculous that the true revolutionary is guided by great feelings of love. Quoting Che Guevara. Oh boy. Loving what? Loving what? Hell? <laughs> Satan? She was saddened by the executions of the anarchists, the murderous anarchists, the murderers, Saku and Venzenti in 1927. Already back, we're going back to 1927 now. She wrote that when they died, all the nation mourned. She mourned for them. Murderous, right? She felt a sense of solidarity with them. As a Catholic, there was something wrong with her Catholicism, but it's Francis's Catholicism mm -hmm. now. So, in any case, I mean, again, and, and uh, again, I, I thought that the, the article was probably meant to praise her, but it's very, very revealing. Yeah. Discussing the term anarchism, uh, Dorothy Day wrote, We ourselves have never hesitated to use the word anarchism. Some prefer personalism, but Peter Moran came to me with Kropotkin in one pocket and St. Francis in the other. The works of Kropotkin... Socialist, anarchist, and St. Francis. Yeah, put them together. What do you get? Francis, mm -hmm. right? You get Bergoglio. That's what you get. She's perfect. She's the embodiment of Bergoglioism long before Bergoglio. Um, now, she did point out that there is a difference between communism and her, what she called her individualism. She says the Marxists say no private property. She says, we believe in widespread private property. Now, some people will say, oh, you see, that's good. That's good. How does that work, though, you know? Well, again, you know, one can... Uh, now, Francis might say, oh, well, capitalism, 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 you know, and I'd say, well, that's where Dorothy Day would part with Francis, but wait, there's more. This is, again, a quote from one of her works. We believe in widespread private property. The deproletarianizing of our American people. We believe in the individual owning the means of production. Okay. Now this is what we would know uh, know as a moral capitalism. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The land and his tools. That the the individual uh, should become an owner. Okay, so she says the de-proletarianizing. Mm -hmm. The communists, a la Marx, said there was a proletariat in the bourgeoisie. The proletariat didn't own, they just worked. The bourgeoisie owned. They didn't work. They put the proletariat to work, yep. like slaves, okay? She says we ought to de-proletarianize people by making them own. Well, this was always the American yeah. purpose, you know? Yeah. 
Um, um, so she says that the individual should own his mean, the means of production, the land, the tools. We are opposed to finance capitalism, chose justly criticized and condemned by Karl Marx. But we believe there can be a Christian capitalism as there can be a Christian communism. No. <laughs> but it is, well, well, now wait a minute, wait a minute. She's praising Marx. She here is saying Christian communism. But when you take away, when you say there's private property and you want to make that as general as possible, then how can you have a Christian communism? Yeah. If she says Christianity Catholicism is to have everybody own private property, right? Nobody be disenfranchised. Then how can you reconcile that with communism, which says take all the private property away and communize everything? Mm -hmm. That's what communal yeah. existence is, you know. Yeah. So again, it's an oxymoron. And in fact, that she doesn't understand that it's an oxymoron indicates there's something wrong, radically, use the expression <laughs> radically wrong, with a thinking that is, is just uh, dangerously um, pathological, you know, as I would say of Francis. And again, to labor is to pray, she says, that is the central point of Christian doctrine of work. To labor is to pray. Well, the Benedictines believe ora et labora, but they didn't say they were the same thing. Mm -hmm. You know, they're two things, right? She says, oh, no, they're the same thing. You know? And that's the fundamental point of Christian doctrine. I beg your pardon? Again, distortion of the faith. She did not know. Hence, it is that while both communism and Christianity are moved by compassion for the multitude, get a load of that, both communism and Christianity are moved by compassion for the multitude? Communism? The object of communism is to make the poor richer, but the object of Christianity is to make the rich poor and the poor holy. <laughs> now that's interesting. That's a very interesting statement. The object of communism is to make the rich poor. <clears throat> no, no, no. Make the poor richer. Actually, that's what a real capitalism is all yeah. about. Make the poor richer, enable the poor to own. Yeah. That's not communism. Yeah. But not only does she falsify communism, she falsifies Christianity. She says the object of Christianity is to make the rich poor, to impoverish the rich. That's our objective. That's the Christian ideal. But to make the poor, not to enrich them, but to make them holy. Happy with their poverty. Yeah. Now, I would say it's exactly the opposite. <laughs> the object of communism and socialism is to make the rich poor and to make the poor good, yeah. good comrades. Yeah. And the object of Catholicism, Christianity, and for that matter, a moral Catholicism is to enrich the poor and let them all you know, enjoy the, the fruits of their labors and the, and the, the goods of the earth. Yeah. That's what God wants, that's what the church wants. She's got it inside out, upside down, backwards, forwards. She's really mixed up. Yeah. And I would say I can see why Frances thinks that she's just the cat's whiskers. Yeah. You know? One has to wonder, though, if she was putting all this stuff out and was publishing all this. Why, why was there no, uh, n no correction? Did she not have any, uh, I, I guess, what... Well, there were those that she, uh, in the hierarchy, she disagreed with. Yeah. And her, her leading light in this, Peter Morin, R-M-A-R-U-M. I'm sorry, M-A-U-R-I-N, Peter Moran, I'm pronouncing it. 
that way, okay. Um, he was uh, blasting the hierarchy back then when they ever they deviated from this line. So they had a contempt for the conditional the they had a contempt for the traditional Catholic hierarchy when they were speak, speaking traditional Catholic things. Yeah. And that's true of Dorothy Day too. Mm-hmm. And I suppose at that time there was probably already a lot of a lot of modernists in <clears throat> positions of power. Absolutely. So. Absolutely there were. When Pope Pius X warns about the modernist in the church, yeah. in the very heart and veins of the church, and he writes in 1907 yeah. about this. <laughs> you know, in 1937, yeah. well, 27, 37, 47, oh yeah, the yeah. modernists were hard at work. Yeah. Here's a very interesting quote, she says. <clears throat> in 1949, she, she was upset because uh, commun- certain communists had been arrested and they were denied bail. She thought that was wrong. Let them have bail, she said. And this is a quote. Let it be remembered that I speak as an ex-communist and one who has not testified before congressional committees, nor written books on the communist conspiracy, I can say with warmth that I love the communist people I worked with and learned much from them. I mean, this is, she, it's almost as though she's quoting Francis now. Okay. Francis says exactly the same thing now. She learned much, from, loved the communist people, worked with them, and learned much from them. They helped me to find God in his poor, in his abandoned ones, as I had not found him in Christian churches. And this is the convert. No. She found in the communists God, right? In the poor, and the Christianity hadn't taught her. She found, she identified points in which she agreed with the communists. Here's a statement, very famous statement, from each according to his ability to each according to his need. She agrees with that. So here we have the Communist Party saying, this is what you're capable of. This is what we're demanding you. This is the work you are required to do. This is what you need. We will decide then what you need. Just as we decided what you're capable of doing, the service that you're capable of rendering, we will also decide what your needs are, and we will give you, not according to what you produce, we will give you what we decide you need. Perfect socialist tyranny. Dorothy Day agrees with this. That's her creed. Not good. Not good. The withering away of the state. Another Marxist fantasy. She agrees with that. That's the ultimate objective. The communal aspect of property, she agreed with. She says it was stressed by the early Christians. But the early Christians gave as gifts because they believed that they, they owned these things. Mm-hmm. But they were moved by, motiva- by love for God to, to give them to others to their, to their benefit, to the community. So when we talk about the communal aspect of property in terms of the communal, the, you know, as, as, as against the, the right to private property, no. You know, the church never taught that. Um, this, this again also is, is very revealing. She identified differences. She says one of the differences, she agreed that class warfare is a fact. She agrees with that central tenet of Marxism. Mm-hmm. Class warfare is a fact. One does not need to advocate it. She says it's just a fact. We just admit it as a fact. She says the question is how do we respond to it? The communists point to it as forced upon them. And they say that when it comes, they will take part in the class warfare. 
And in their plans, they want to repair the ground and win as many as possible to their point of view and for their side. And where will we be on that day, she says to her fellow Catholics. We will inevitably be forced to be on their side, physically speaking, on the side of the the communists, in in the class warfare. But when it comes to activity, we will be pacifists. So that will distinguish us from the communists, because in the class warfare, which we admit is an actual fact, undeniable fact, and uh, we will actually side with them in principle, but we're not going to pick up arms to fight, fight it. Okay? That's what's going to distinguish us. We will be pacifists. I hope and pray nonviolent resistors of aggression from whoever it comes, resistors to repression, coercion, from whatever side it comes. Whatever side it comes, the communists or, or others, you know. Our, our activity will be the works of mercy, Francis. <laughs> our arms will be the love of God and our brother. She even talks about those who uh, find the love, who love God even though they don't believe in him, but they, believe, they, they love their fellow man. That is equivalent to the love of God, as far as she's concerned. In 1961, July, again, to go back to that question, we are on the side of the revolution. Castro We believe there must be new concepts of property, which is proper to man, and that the new concept is not so new. There is a Christian communism and a Christian capitalism. Francis might not agree with the latter one. We believe in farming communes and cooperatives, and we'll be happy to see how they work out in Cuba. (laughs) God bless Castro and all those who are seeing Christ in the poor. God bless... All of those who are seeing, seeking the brotherhood of man, because in loving their brothers, they love God even though they deny him. Fantasy. Yeah. Fantasy. So, in other words, um, this is something, Tom, that I find particularly offensive. And it's something that came up earlier in the program, about, about Pius IX and the Papal mm-hmm. States. She says, Day's belief in smallness applied to the property of others. Others should be modest in in the property they have, including the Catholic Church, she says. And so she wrote, Fortunately, the Papal States were wrested from the Church in the last century. Fortunately. This was an attack of the Masons under Garibaldi, a member of the occult lodge of Mizraim, the Egyptian form of Masonry, to which uh, which Garibaldi belonged, the occult. He was involved in the occult. And he led the attack on the Papal States with the objective of the Masons to take away all independence from the, the, the Vicar of Christ to make him subject to the laws of a Masonic nation and jail him if he does not follow the dictates of Masonry. That's what this was all about, to take away the Papal States by force. Dorothy Day says, fortunately, the Papal States were wrested from the Church in the last century. But there is still the problem of investment of Papal funds. The Church still has too much in her mind. It is always a cheering thought to me that if we have goodwill and are still unable to find remedies for the economic abuses of our time, 
in our family, our parish, and the mighty church as a whole, God will take matters in hand and do the job for us. He will despoil the church of her means of wealth in the world, you know. The very thing that Catholics have been taught to pray for, she says is an evil, and we rejoice that God will take all of this away and reduce the church to helplessness before the world. This is monstrous, right? Monstrous. So here's what she says. When I saw the Garibaldi Mountains in British Columbia, I said a prayer for his soul and blessed him for being the instrument of so mighty a work of God. May God use us. May God use her the same way he used Garibaldi. The man is responsible for invading Rome and uh, uh, under at the point of the sword dispersing the First Vatican Council. Mm-hmm. Yeah? The man was a monster. And uh, she, she uh, thinks he was, he was just wonderful. God bless him, she says, for what he did. Uh, it's awful. It's just awful. She's a perfect revolutionary, perfect revolutionary patron saint for the modernists under, uh, under Jorge Bergoglio. Mm-hmm. Perfect for Francis. The Jesuit priest Daniel Lyons said that Dorothy Day was an apostle of pious opera simplification. I would say, <laughs> boy, if that isn't the truth. Pious oversimplification. I mean, he's pointing out this naivete here. Yeah. If it was naivete, yeah. I get the impression that it really was naivete, that this poor woman was lost in this fantasy land, um, which, you know, and following this, this brand of Catholicism, that she might have been personally pious, but this is a very dangerous piety that is detached from reality and, and from the traditional teaching of the church. She was just off inventing her own, her own Catholicism, yeah. you know. Well, in any case, um, there's much more that we said. Somebody can read the article uh, if they really wanted to, to know. And as I say, um, I did not verify these quotations. Yeah. It would be very good if somebody would. Mm-hmm. If somebody had the time, the interest, and the, the means to go and verify all of these things. But I would say if what is here, heavily footnoted, uh, corresponds to what is really on the pages of her own works, then I would say that uh, she is a siren voice leading, you know, anybody would follow her onto the rocks, onto the shoals of destruction of their faith. Yeah. And right into the, into the path of following the revolutionary Francis mm-hmm. with all of his communist friends. Yeah. Yeah. I think the scary thing is that now uh, with her cause for canonization, if that actually happens, here's the Novus Ordo Church holding her up as an example for, oh, oh. For, for billions of Catholics all across, so-called Catholics all across the world to follow her example. And there's going to be uh, right. supposed Catholics praying to Dorothy Day, asking for her help, for yeah, her guidance. Yeah, they're going to have a feast of Dorothy Day. Dorothy Day. Yeah. Yeah, can you imagine? So they're... Uh, um, they actually give an account here of, of where that stands uh, with uh, this cause that she has. For canonization, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, they, oh, here you are, cause for sainthood. Mm-hmm. This is how they, uh, 
bring to a conclusion the treatment of this. I'll read this part sure. anyway for what it's worth. A proposal, a proposal for Day's canonization was put forth publicly by the Claritian missionaries in 1983. At the request of Cardinal John J. O'Connor, head of the diocese in which she lived, in March 2000, John Paul II granted the Archdiocese of New York permission to open her cause, allowing her to be called a servant of God. In the eyes of the Catholic Church, as canon law requires, the Archdiocese of New York submitted this cause for the endorsement of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, which it received in November of 2012. Some members of the Catholic Worker Movement objected to the canonization process as a contradiction of Day's own values and concerns. And then we see that Benedict XVI on February 13, 2013, in the closing days of his papacy, cited Day as an example of conversion. But this is true conversion, right? He says, he quoted from her writings, saying, the journey towards faith in such a secularized environment was particularly difficult, but grace acts nonetheless. Well, I would say, Dorothy, I do hope you saved your soul. And I really hope that this nonsense, um, and I would say even... Uh, like, I don't know, nonsense is, uh, that, sh that she's saying here, uh, praising Che Guevara, Marx, and Lenin, and, and uh, Castro, and Nazi Tung, and all the rest. Uh, I would say if she thinks that it was grace working in their lives to do what they did, and this is the grace she's talking about that worked in her life, then I would really, I would, I would, be terrified for her salvation. Mm -hmm. If that's the grace that she's pointing to, the grace that works in the life of, 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 of Mao Zedong, of Fidel Castro, of Marx, of Lenin, and the rest of them, if that's the grace that she's talking about was working in her life, then heaven help her. Mm -hmm. but if it can. I think this is the perfect, uh, the perfect, uh, perfect example of, of uh, the difference between the new church and the traditional church, where you can see they're removing, uh, like they'll remove the feast of Saint Philomena, and they'll, and they're going to replace her essentially with something like this, with this, this story. Yeah, they they remove the feast of a priest of a Saint Christopher or something. Yeah. And they'll, they'll because that's legend, yeah. and they'll replace it with a feast of Paul the Sixth or John Paul the yeah. Second or uh, even a John the Twenty Third. It's so true. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's their new pantheon. Yeah, yeah. It's, their new uh, Mount Olympus. That's a mess, but <laughs> wow! Well, Anybody who's going to be following the modernists and their escapades, yeah. you know, and the escapades of Bergolian fantasies, yeah. is is going to wind up out, totally outside the Catholic faith, mm -hmm. and uh, following the, down the primrose path of the the broad way that leads to perdition. Yeah. they've got to they've got to face in fact where they're going here. Yeah. Just I mean, look at the examples that they're holding up. I mean, this is what they're saying, that, that the good Catholic should be. This is exemplary virtue right here. And, and can you imagine Day, as a Catholic Day. father saying, you know, Dorothy Day, yeah. okay, Dorothy Day was this great social activist, and she they canonized by the church. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you read her writings, and she's she's praising Karl Marx, and she's praising Fidel Castro, and she's praising Mao Zedong. Can you imagine telling your children that? You know, here here you have a saint of the of the modern church who's 
praising these, 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 these people who are possessed by Satan and boasted of the millions they murdered and the, the, the glory of communism. How could any sensible, decent man who would call himself Catholic, Catholic father, how could he for an instant contemplate teaching his children that, yes, this is a saint of the church. Study her writings, study her life, follow her example. Uh, it's it's an, it's abominable. It's an abomination. Yeah. And and yet this is what they're going to wind up doing. This is what these starry-eyed people living in this Bergolian fantasy world, you know, uh, this is what they're going to be doing. They're going to be just like her. They're going to be just like Dorothy Day, living in a world in which Fidel Castro, Mao Zedong, Marx, and Lenin were all motivated by a love for their fellow man. Yeah. I'm sorry, but that is absurd. It's a it's a bald faced lie, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know. Yeah. This comes straight. This is a a teaching straight from hell. Yeah. You know, and um, we have to resist this nonsense. This 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 is uh, damnable nonsense with every fiber in our beings, and every every bit of faith we have yeah. to denounce this and say this is this is outrageous. This is an outrageous lie. Absolutely. So anyway, Tom, uh, I know this was the subject of another program, perhaps <laughs> after all we've been through here. But I think it's important to set the record straight that when one does examine the life and the writings of Dorothy Day, if what we've got here is accurate, it was not sanctification, it was an abomination. Sure, yeah, I think I could agree with that. Anyone that actually goes through and even just does a, a quick reading of, of, of anything in their life, mm -hmm. I think I think you'll see that. And I think that the fact that, the, that this new church is, is canonizing her, I think that's, that's a dead giveaway. A little footnote on that, by the way. Yeah. She says, well, you know, we don't like the communism of, of Castro and the Cuba and so on and all the other things that went along with it because she has to resist the, the, the taking the faith away from the people. She says that here. Yeah. You know, in Cuba, I must oppose anything that would take the faith away from the people. But she says, on the other hand, if we have the leader of the revolution who's trying to make a, a good life for the people here on this earth, that we must praise and that we must support. Now you see why they love Mother Teresa too? Yeah. Same thing. Same idea. Yeah. You know, she says, let's uh, heal their wounds, let's fill their stomachs, and all the rest. Don't talk to them about Christ. Mm -hmm. Don't talk to them about faith. Yeah. Don't talk to them about their souls. Yeah. True faith. Mm -hmm. No. That way we cannot trespass there. Yeah. Well, there you have. There you have it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I cannot be in favor of them taking faith away from these people. But insofar as they're giving them a good life in the world, yep, let's we, we support them because they have the best of intentions. Mm -hmm. No. Yeah, and that's that's the exact antithesis of uh, of what the true Catholic Church does. I believe I've heard in, in a sermon, Father, that uh, the chief characteristic, if one is looking for the true church which Christ established, they must first look for a church that is chiefly concerned with with uh, man's the with, with, souls. yeah with with the spiritual the spiritual realm and that and that's the exact opposite. And if of, you of if you means. look search the writings of Bergoglio, mm -hmm. search the writings of John Paul II, search the writings of Paul VI. Materialism. There's nothing about saving the soul. Yeah, it's all about making a better world for people to live happily ever after. Yeah. The devil would be very happy to feed us 
clothe us and have us all living in, in mansions. If in the end he could claim our souls for his own mansion in hell. Yeah, yeah that's his formula, yeah. right? And that's, that's the formula of the modern Bergolian modern, modernist, modernist church. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a church of the world. Right. It reminds me of what our Lord said to Peter. Just after he had said, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell now will reveal against us, against it. St. Matthew chapter 16, I'm beginning to think that every Catholic should memorize that. <laughs> there are 30 something verses in that, and I think, yes, every Catholic should memorize that. Because it, it really sums up what we're dealing with today. Yeah. No sooner had our Lord made this promise to Peter than our Lord began to tell the apostles about the fact that he was going to go to Jerusalem and be scourged and spat upon and crucified and die and rise. And Peter took him aside and began to uh, contradict what our Lord was saying, arguing with him, insisting that what our Lord was saying was not true. And what our Lord said to him at that point was so revealing. Get thee behind me, Satan. He calls him Satan. Because you are a scandal to me. Because you mind not the things of God, but the things of man. And boy, if, there's any, if there are any words that really sum up the nature of modernism and the whole modern monstrous church of Bergoglio and his, and his gang, it is that. You mind the things of man and not the things of God. Get thee behind me, Satan, because you are as Satan now. Mm -hmm. uh, to me, and and to the faithful, leading them in the wrong in the wrong way, you know. That's what our Lord uh, then went on to say. Look, not only will I be crucified, but you, if you want to be my disciples, must take up your crosses every day and follow me. That's what our Lord said. That mm -hmm. the the closing verses of that very chapter, Saint Matthew chapter sixteen, and I think that's the message message we have to give now to the Catholic people, the real traditional Catholic people. You have to tell them, okay, you know, I have to take seriously our Lord's words here. Uh, just as you take seriously our Lord's words, when, when Peter is professing, when Peter is professing thou art Christ, the Son of the living God, then we have to take that seriously. When Peter is Minding the things of man and not of God, we also have to take our Lord's ser word seriously there. That it becomes a Satan and a scandal before God and man. And we also have to take very seriously our Lord's words. We, traditional Catholics, now are called upon to take up our crosses every day, and there will be crosses for being faithful, for being true to the faith. We have to be willing to shoulder those crosses and follow our Lord regardless of the voice of a Dorothy Day, of a Karl Marx, as good intentioned, as well intentioned as he was, Mao Zedong, right? Mao Zedong, or Castro, or Lenin, or any of these people, or Bergoglio, regardless of the, all those other voices. If they are speaking the things of man and not the things of God, we have to ignore those voices, and we have to follow our Lord. And the only way you can follow him is by patiently accepting the cross of being traditional Catholics and being faithful. Mm -hmm. Well, it can't be said any better than that, Father. So. Well, I'm sure it could, but maybe we better not keep trying. <laughs> That's not the purposes of this program, anyway. <laughs> okay. so. Well, thank you for being here tonight, Father. Yeah, I appreciate yeah. it. Well, Tom, thank you. No God problem. You. No problem. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. 
Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.